Thank you, Runners Campers, for leading us in that rocking Runners Camp song. Daniel Creswell is secretly moving towards Rockers Camp. That'll be coming <laughs> soon, I think. A couple things I want to draw to your attention this morning as we get started. Um, first of all, over the summer, as you can even tell with the empty seats here this morning, a number of our families travel. That means we have lots of gaps in our children's ministry, uh, more gaps than substitutes these days. And because we would like to keep Stephanie Jackson from re resigning, we need, uh, we need a little extra help. So outside of your child's classroom, there is a sign-up sheet for you to sign up just one Sunday this summer that you could step out of your normal study role perhaps and serve. Uh, so if, if you would be able to do that and be willing to do that, it would be a tremendous help and it would allow us to keep Stephanie on staff a little longer, which we would very much like to do. So outside of your child's class, if you're a member at North Wake, you can sign up for just one Sunday this summer as it fits your schedule to pop in and give us a little extra service that would be tremendously helpful. Also, I did want to note to you that uh, last week I, I taught <clears throat> based on Jesus' teaching about false prophets and false teachings I identified a number of errant teachings that are going on in our days. One of those was Pastor John Hagee, who taught that Jesus did not claim in word or deed to be the Messiah when he came, uh, which gave all of us great pause, as it should. He has, it turns out, printed a, a revision of that book in the last year and uh, no longer claims that, at least not in the same fashion that he did before. And the, the best thing about that is that evidently... Someone who knew the scriptures better, a scholar, came to him and helped him with that. And he actually submitted the revision of that book to scholarly review, uh, which was a very humble and gracious and wise thing for him to do. And that's been retracted, for which we should all be very thankful. But that's part of just the beauty of having someone sit over your teaching, if you are a teacher or a writer uh, who speaks, endeavors to speak for God. And if you have a favorite Bible teacher that you like to listen to or read, a great question for you to ask them would be, who, who sits over your teaching, who evaluates your teaching, who vets what you write or what you speak before it goes out or, or helps you with it in terms of issuing corrections and stuff? Uh, it's part of the beauty of a church like Northwake that's led by a plurality or a group of elders, um, not a single pastor. I, I guarantee you if I ever wrote a book or an article or preached a sermon or even entertained the thought that Jesus was not the Messiah, our elders would be all over me like a bad rash. Um, and it's, that's a very good thing that protects our church and helps our church stay healthy. And So I'm thankful for uh, Reverend Hagee's uh, wise revision of his book, and we want to be thankful for that this morning. So would you bow with me in prayer as we go to the Lord? Father, this morning we uh, just rejoice and delight in the ability to call you our Heavenly Father on this Father's Day. Many great dads in this room, but the great privilege is to know you as Father. And all of us who believe celebrate and rejoice in that this morning. And so, God, we ask that right now you as our Father would come and teach us as your children. Show us what it is you have for us, the life you're calling us to. And I pray that extra mercy would be upon us this morning as we sit in submission to this teaching of Jesus, this good teaching, and we pray in his name. Amen. Well, today we are listening to the concluding remarks of Jesus' great sermon that we call the Sermon on the Mount. 
It is in the back part of Matthew chapter 7, if you'd like to open your Bibles there. Jesus has throughout this sermon been showing us how we live with him as king. Not with us as king, not with any other king, but with Jesus as king. And it is a radically different life than we would live if left to our own devices. It's a life where we are freed by trust in our great king so that we can be meek and pure and lovers of what is right and good. It's a life marked by joy and prayer and forgiveness and love of neighbors, even love of enemies, this life that Jesus is calling us to. Now, as he concludes his sermon, Jesus is warning us, as we've seen in recent weeks, with a series of choices. He says, you must choose between the small or the wide gate. You must choose between the narrow or the broad road. You must choose to be the good tree or the bad tree. He is pressing us, and he continues in that pattern in our verses today, starting in verse 21 of chapter 7. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, Jesus says, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Jesus is warning us not to be deceived about whether or not we are actually going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Tragically, he tells us, many, many, he says, are falling precisely into that error. And in Jesus' mind, this is a big deal. It's the biggest of deals. The imagery he uses throughout this section makes it clear he thinks this is of the utmost importance. In Jesus' teaching, when people find out they're shut out of the kingdom, they're desperate. They're saying, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? Did we not drive out demons and perform many miracles in your name? How could we be shut out? It is a matter of absolute desperation. Why is it such a big deal that you be in the kingdom? See, to enter the kingdom is to know the king. It's to be accepted by him, to be loved and cared for by him, to be under his all-powerful protection and loving rule, and in the kingdom of God, God is king. To be in the kingdom is to have that kind of relationship with God. The alternative is to be shut out from knowing him, to not know his care or his loving rule. Jesus alludes to that in that closing verse that I just read there. It says, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. To be shut out of the kingdom is to be shut out of the presence of God. I'd like you to listen again to a passage that I referenced last week where Jesus is teaching with this same kind of language in Luke 13. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Jesus said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you'll stand outside knocking and pleading. Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you'll say, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. But he'll reply, I don't know you 
or where you came from, away from me, all you evildoers. And there will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. It's a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. To be shut out from the kingdom, to be away from King Jesus, is a place of great sorrow. It's the saddest place in the world. Nothing but tears and suffering. And Jesus says many, many will not be able to enter the kingdom. And Jesus should know. He says he is the judge who bars entrance to the kingdom on that day. So Jesus is making sure at the end of his great Sermon on the Mount that we get this one right, that we aren't deceived about whether or not we're going to enter his kingdom. And Jesus anticipates turning many, many away, he says. So this morning, if you're here and you're a universalist, you think everybody gets in. Or if you're a pluralist, you think all religions allow people to get in. You need to understand that Jesus emphatically does not share your opinion. In Jesus' teaching, the gate is small, the road is narrow that leads to eternal life, and many, he says, will not find it. And today, Jesus wants to make sure that you do, that you are not numbered amongst the many. Well, back in our, in our text we're looking at, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is teaching us that a mere profession is not enough. It's not just enough to say words, at least not this profession. Lord could just mean sir, or it could mean a whole lot more. But just a profession, just to say words is not sufficient. That profession must be an expression of transforming faith. In Timothy, 2 Timothy, Paul would write, he'd say, Uh, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription, the the Lord knows those who are His. And everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. The expectation is that there is a transforming faith that gives birth to this confession that actually changes someone's life. That they, in fact, will turn away from wickedness. See, childhood professions of faith in Jesus made 20 or more years ago with virtually no change in a life should give you great pause at this point. A mere profession that Jesus is Lord is not enough. In a more puzzling fashion, Jesus says, neither are good deeds, even great deeds, even if you could work miracles. That's not what matters. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only he who does the will of my Father. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? You know, performing many miracles, Jesus says is not enough, it's not what matters in terms of getting into the kingdom of heaven. There's an almost uh, comedic scene in Acts 19 where there's some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits and they tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. And they would say, 
In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. And seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing just that. And one day the evil spirit actually answered them. And he says, uh, the spirit says, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on all seven of them and overpowered them all. And he gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Just doing miracles, mighty miracles, even in the names of Jesus, casting out demons, is not the key to entrance into the kingdom. There are no deeds, no matter how mighty, that merit entrance into the kingdom. They too, these great deeds, like a profession, must be expressions of transformative faith. Now Jesus clues us in, in our text, about what does really matter, about what are the things that do allow the gates of the kingdom of heaven to swing open for people like you and me. He indicates there that not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus is saying here that obedience to the will of the Father, not so much miracles as being meek and pure in heart and trusting God for your daily bread, those are the people who are going to get into the kingdom. Obedience to the will of the Father, which is revealed in the teaching of Jesus, right here in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, obedience to the will of the Father is required to enter the kingdom. Jesus gives us a second important clue, though. In verse 23, right at the end there, he says, I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you. That those who are shut out of the kingdom, they're shut out because they were not known by Jesus. And this is relational language. Jesus uses it elsewhere in John 10. He says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. There's a mutuality of knowing. Jesus knows them, they know him. There's a relationship that Jesus is talking about here. If you have a relationship marked by faith and affection and obedience with Jesus, the kingdom is yours. So when we put those two clues together of obedience and relationship or knowing, it's about a relationship with Jesus that produces a life marked by obedience to his teaching. That's the kind of people who enter the kingdom. A relationship with Jesus that produces a life marked by obedience to his teaching. Perfect obedience? No. The rest of the New Testament tells us that followers of Christ are not perfect. But we should say typical obedience, even increasing obedience to the teaching of Jesus. That, according to Jesus, is how you enter the kingdom. By knowing and being known by him in such a way that you do the will of God increasingly, typically. And Jesus desperately wants to make sure that we get that right. That we're not deceived that we might get into the kingdom just because we're here. That's not the ticket. So he concludes his sermon and he presses this same teaching on us again from a different angle. He tells us a story. It's a story of two builders who built two houses. Therefore, Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house 
on the rock. Rain came down, streams rose, winds blew, beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, streams rose, winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. See, it's not the, it's not the skill of the builder or the quality of the materials or the design of the floor plan of these houses that sets them apart. The outcomes, however, are radically different. It's not even the storms that are different. We could even say it's the same storm that hits both houses. Those outcomes are radically different. The one did not fall and the other one fell with a great crash. Some of your Bibles render that uh, great was its fall. What makes the difference? Well, any good realtor knows the answer to that question. It's location, location, location. That's what, that's what makes the difference. In these two houses, it's not curb appeal, it's not creative financing, it's not good schools, it's the location. One was built on rock and the other was built on sand. The location is what determines the foundation, which is what matters. We could, we could rephrase that. What matters here is foundation, foundation, foundation. And Jesus is clear about what a foundation upon the rock is. It is people who hear Jesus' teaching and then do what Jesus says. That is building your house, your life, on the rock that is wise. It's interesting to note here, Jesus says his words are equal to the will of the Father. He says... He is the judge who's going to determine kingdom, kingdom entrance. Jesus is making God-like claims for himself here. Don't miss that. But what's really interesting here is what the sand is. What it means to build your house on sand. And the sand is, is just hearing. The builder whose house collapses at the coming of the great storm, who suffers a total loss, you know, he sits and he listens. He hears Jesus teach. Maybe he listens to preachers and uh, Christian talk show hosts and even the Bible on CD. Honestly, he could be sitting in this room just like you are this morning listening to me. He could be here every week. He could even take notes. He could even pick up a CD on the way out and listen to it again. But if he just hears and doesn't do it, Jesus says, that's sand. And it's all going to collapse when the great storm comes. What's the storm? Well, you know, it could just be the tough times that life brings our way. It could be bad marriage. It could be no, no marriage at all. It could be wayward kids or unable to have kids at all. It could be a miserable job or not being able to have a job at all. It could be cancer or some terrible mishap. It could be any of those things. But I, I think Jesus had something uh, more particular on the forefront of his mind here. I think he was thinking about a bigger storm than even all of those, what we might call the perfect storm, what we sometimes call judgment day. 
I think that's what Jesus was thinking about. Judgment Day is not just a movie title. It is an actual day that the Bible says throughout its pages is coming. Romans chapter 2, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. The Bible from beginning to end talks about a day that's coming that will be a judgment day for everyone, every one of us. Jesus alludes to this in our passage when he says, many will say to me on that day, that day is judgment day. The Old Testament prophets used to just refer to it with that language. They say that day is coming, that day. And everyone knew what it meant. It was to be a horrific day when that storm would come and it would destroy those who built foolishly. Ezekiel uses the same imagery. He says, because they lead my people astray, saying peace when there's no peace. And because when a flimsy wall is built, they cover it with whitewash. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. In my wrath, I will unleash a violent wind. And in my anger, hailstones and torrents of rain will fall with destructive fury. I will tear down the wall you've covered with whitewash. And will level it to the ground so that its foundation will be laid bare. When it falls, you'll be destroyed in it and you will know. That I am the Lord. See, the storm symbolizes that day, judgment day. So if you are numbered among those who just say, Lord, Lord, but do not do the will of the Father. If you don't know God and are known by Him in such a way that you do His will, not perfectly, but typically, even increasingly, Jesus says, you won't get in. Worse yet, your whole life will come crashing down. And he says, great will that fall be. No matter what you say or what great deeds you've done or how many good sermons you've heard, you will not get in unless your faith in Christ is transforming you such that you obey increasingly and typically the will of God. Jesus is warning us this morning that many of us are deceived on this matter. He is warning you so that you will not be numbered among them. Now towards that end, what I would like to do this morning is as Jesus closes his great sermon out with, with this focus, I'd like to close this sermon out, my sermon out, with a very simple but clear explanation of what I think Jesus has been saying. It's called uh, The Two Roads, and it comes to us from Matthias Media, and I'd just like to share it with you this morning. But as it is important that you are listening to this presentation with eyes for your own life. So it starts this way. Life is a journey, let's say, from the cradle to the grave. And according to the Bible, there are just two roads through life. And there are six signposts to help us from going from the turn from the wrong road to the right road. The first signpost is that this is God's world. You can see this in part by looking around you. This world looks more like a painting by Rembrandt than an explosion in a paint factory. 
In other words, it's no accident we're here. This is a made world, and we are made people, and the maker is God. And what he made, he owns, and what he owns, he's in charge of. God is the good and loving ruler of everything in his world, and that includes us. In fact, God put us here as his managers to look after the place he made. Mind you, we're supposed to be following his instructions and running the place the way he wants. He's the owner and the boss, after all. We're supposed to spend our lives traveling down God's road under God's directions, following the road he's marked out for us and following his orders, looking after each other and his world in the way he told us to. The Bible puts it like this. You are worthy, our Lord and God. You are worthy to receive glory and honor and power. You are worthy because you created all things. They were created and they exist. That's the way you planned it. They write, it sounds pretty near perfect, doesn't it? A great maker and owner giving us the best of everything and us looking after the place exactly how he said. But take another look around. It's not like that. We take the wrong road. Take a look at the news any night on TV. If God made the world good, then how can we explain all that bad news and all the tension in home after home and workplace after workplace? The answer is, God got it right, and we got it wrong. What does the average person do with respect to God? Nothing. We don't want God telling us what to do or how to live our lives, so we ignore and reject God and get on with running our lives our way without Him. We make ourselves boss. We choose our own road rather than God's road, and that's the problem. That's what's wrong with the world. It's full of people trying to be their own bosses and choosing their own roads. But we didn't make this place, and we don't know how it's supposed to work. So we make a terrible mess of things in our lives, in our families, in our world. And God holds us responsible, all of us, because we've all chosen the wrong road. The Bible puts it this way. No one is right with God. No one at all. No one understands. No one trusts in God. All of them have turned away. They've all become worthless. No one does anything good. No one at all. So what do you think God will do about people like us who've rejected his directions, taken our own road, hurt each other, and let his world get in such a mess? We're headed for big trouble. What do you think happens to someone who goes on ignoring and rejecting God? Well, what would happen to someone who just ignored their boss, refused to listen to his orders, and did whatever they liked with the boss's property? Now, sooner or later, they'd get fired, right? Well, that is what we're facing. By choosing our own road, the message we're sending God is just leave me alone. And in his own time, God will give us exactly what we ask for. God will leave us entirely alone. He will cut us off from himself. And since God is the source of life and light and everything good, being cut off from him means death and destruction. If we choose our own road, it leads to only one terrifying destination, God's punishment. The Bible puts it very bluntly. People have to die once, and after that, God will judge them. Is that it then? We've rejected God, chosen our own road, and we're facing misery? If not for God himself, it would be. 
The fantastic news of the Bible is that God hasn't just left us to go down our own road and face his judgment. Because of his great love, God sent his own son, Jesus, into the world as his rescue mission to planet Earth. Jesus didn't do what we've done. He never ignored God. He always followed God's orders. He never went off in the wrong direction. He always traveled down God's road under God's orders. Jesus, they say, was as good as it gets. But God sent Jesus into this world to take the punishment he didn't deserve, but what we all do. Jesus died our death, took our punishment, and brought our forgiveness. That was God's rescue plan. And the Bible says Jesus carried it out to the letter. Christ died for sins once and for all time. The one who did what is right died for those who don't do right. He died to bring you to God. His body was put to death, but the Holy Spirit brought him back to life. Jesus died for people who'd rejected and ignored God and whose lives as a result were marked by mistakes and wrongdoing. But that is not the end of the story. Jesus didn't stay dead. God brought Jesus back to life again, and the Bible says that God accepted Jesus' death as payment in full for our sins and put the risen Jesus in charge of the world as ruler and rescuer. And because Jesus is God's ruler, when judgment day comes, he'll be the one we'll stand before. And we heard Jesus say that in the passage we studied today. In the meantime, Jesus gives everyone the chance to wipe the slate clean and make a fresh start. We can be forgiven for going down our own road and begin a new life with Jesus going down his road, which is God's road. All our sins have been paid for through his death and resurrection, so we can be quite sure that when Jesus does return to judge, he will welcome us into eternal life. The Bible says, Give praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth and a hope that is alive. It is alive because Jesus Christ himself rose from the dead. So where does that leave you? There are exactly two options. We can either keep going down our own road through life or we can turn back and start traveling down God's road. Jesus invites us to turn, to trust, and to travel. To turn from our road to his road, to trust in him as our rescuer and ruler, and travel for the rest of life down his road, following him and taking his orders. So we can keep on ignoring and rejecting God, muddling along, doing the best we can, falling on our feet sometimes and falling on our face quite often. And then when we die, we'll discover that God knows us as rebels, not friends. At that point, it'll be too late to fix up how we stand with God. We've made our bed, and then we'll have to lie in it. But if we do turn, and if we do trust, and if we do travel down God's road, God says that Jesus' death has paid for our failures and wrongdoings and rejection of God, and he welcomes us home as one of his own family. The Bible says anyone who believes in the Son has eternal life. Anyone who says no to the Son 
will not have life. God's anger remains on him. The two roads could not possibly be more different. Our road is marked by rejection and ignoring of God as ruler and trying to run our own lives our own way. But God's road is marked by traveling with Jesus as our ruler and trust in Jesus' death and resurrection. The results of our road is that we're headed towards disaster and we're facing God's punishment. But the result of God's road is that we are forgiven by Him and given eternal life. Now critically, which of these two roads through life would you like to travel on? And honestly, I mean honestly, which one are you actually traveling on right now? To change direction, you need to talk to God. This is what the Bible means by prayer. There's nothing particularly mysterious about it. It's just like using your phone to call for help. It's talking to someone who can help, who can do for you what you can't do for yourself. So what do you say when you call out to God? And I found the way they put this particularly helpful. What you need to say to God is what we teach our children to say. Sorry, thanks, and please. You say, sorry, God, I've ignored you and rejected you, and I'm sorry for all the things I've done wrong while on my own road. You say, thanks for sending Jesus to die for me and rescue me. And you say, please forgive me and change me and take over running my life from this day forward. Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Only he who is entered through the narrow gate who is Christ and now walks the narrow way with Christ. Which road, honestly, I mean, be honest, which road are you on? Because this morning, God is extending to you through Christ's teaching an opportunity to change roads. And so I'd like to lead us in closing prayer along those lines. Would you bow with me? God, it's a, it's a sobering thing when your son says, many, many will not be allowed to enter in. Many are going to be shocked when they're turned away. And so, tragically, in a group like this, God, there are bound to be a number of us who are in that deceived state. We've come here many times. We've made the right profession. We've done lots of good things but you don't know us and we don't know you in such a way that we are obeying you increasingly and typically in our lives. Lord, I pray specifically right now on behalf of those who find themselves sitting squarely on the wrong road, that you would hear them as they pray to you right now and say, I am sorry, God. I'm sorry I've ignored you. And I've rejected you. 
and I'm sorry I've taken my own road and for all the things I've done wrong while I was on that road. God, hear their prayer as they say to you, thank you. Thank you for helping me understand and get it today that Jesus did come. He had to come to die for me and rescue me from that road I was on. Thank you. Please forgive me. Please change me. Please take over running my life so that I might do your will both now and forever. Lord, in mercy, hear our prayers. Grant us faith so that we might enter in. You might be our king. We ask this in the name of Jesus who makes it all possible.